0: The following program was pre recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. We don't need no education.
1: We don't need no control.
2: Get ready to take notes because school is now in session. Tackling the biggest issues in education, this is Education America. Save the Classroom, Save the Country. Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Mark Durkin.
0: And welcome to Education America, where we are taking steps to save the classroom so that we can save the country. Come along with us every Saturday night here on AM 1280 The Patriots. K-12 education is the playing field, as the 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, so succinctly stated. He said the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. Mm -hmm. I'm Mark Durkin, joined by my co-host and founder of Liberty Classical Academy, Rebecca Hagstrom. As critical race theory continues to grow, permeating every aspect of American society, there's also a grassroots movement that is fighting back right here in the state of Minnesota. The movement is educating Americans away from an ideology that threatens to not only further pit Americans against each other, but to forever dismiss the principles of individual liberties found in the Declaration of Independence while destroying individual rights outlined in the Constitution.
2: That's right. Uh, And joining us by telephone tonight to share why it's important to combat the lies stemming from critical race theory is Kendall Qualls. Kendall is a former candidate for the United States House of Representatives, and he is the president of a nonprofit organization called Take Charge Minnesota. The organization strives to unite Americans, regardless of background, toward a shared history and a common set of beliefs, celebrating the idea of the American dream and encourage people working to achieve it. Kendall, thank you so much for joining us tonight on Education America.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, both of you, Mark and Rebecca. You guys are great, and uh, I look forward to uh, spending time
2: with you today. All right, that's wonderful. Well, prior to founding of Take Charge Minnesota, you decided to run for a U.S. House seat, representing District 3 here in Minnesota. However, you've mentioned that it's not the accomplishments you want to stress, but the life journey you've been on. Start us off tonight by sharing how your life experiences have shaped your passions today and how they encouraged you to run for public office in
1: 2020. Well, well, yes, absolutely. Uh, You know, what's interesting at the time of my life journey, I didn't think it was a God blessing, but it turned out to be in in hindsight, you know, often as we look back on our path in life. Mm-hmm. You know, my, unfortunately, my parents divorced when I was very young. I was in first grade. My dad just come, came back from Vietnam, and uh, we were living in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, mm-hmm. home of the 101st Airborne. Mm-hmm. And they divorced. We, I, I moved with my four other siblings to my grandparents, my maternal grandparents' home in Harlem, New York. Wow. Now, <laughs> at that time, in the late 60s, Harlem, New York was like... Um, like Chicago is today times 10. It was mm-hmm. the epicenter for drugs, gangs, and violence.
2: Mm-hmm. Not a safe I, place to be brought, that's for sure.
1: Uh, I, absolutely. So I started my life there uh, my, in my, my early childhood elementary school years. And unfortunately, um, my mom could not handle all five of us by herself. My, my older brothers and sisters were getting absorbed into the street culture of mm-hmm. Harlem. Mm-hmm. And so about three, four years later, my dad came and got me and my younger brother to live with him. Uh, he was still a drill sergeant in the Army. He was paying alimony and child support. So the only thing that he could afford was a, a trailer in a small trailer park in Oklahoma.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: so I tell people I, uh, I got my start in life. I've been called trailer trash, ghetto mm-hmm. kid, and a lot worse.
3: Oh. But the, yeah, so
1: hard. The really neat thing about our country is you know, where you start in life is not where you have to stay in life.
3: Mm-hmm, that's and
1: right. I, I got a chance to see that ability of America, uh, the idea of America, at work and personally in my life. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that uh, if I can do it, anyone can. And I, w- I want to encourage people. I've I've mentored people my entire life, young, young men and just that have been in my same situation. And when I started hearing the things... In my adult life, just a few years ago, about the country being systemically racist and that there's white privilege and all of that nonsense, so I got to do something. I will really have to do something. I think our country's in peril if people start believing this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Except, mm-hmm. Especially when they hear it from elected officials, right? So that's that's why I got involved, and that's kind of like the start of my life.
0: Well, mindset is everything, isn't it, Quendell? I mean, that, you know, to come out of that mindset, to recognize it at such a young age, I can't, I mean, it's just, it's amazing how that just means everything. Because if we get in the wrong mindset, we're going to be stuck in that rut forever. Mm -hmm. We won't Mm -hmm. come out of it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to just also comment on the fact that, you know, you ran for office, and I know you joke about this when you present, and that that you you talk about the fact that, well, you know, I, I get introduced as someone who lost his race, but... I think that you are doing almost mightier things in in some sense by um, having started this nonprofit organization. And, um, you know, I'm sure you would have done great things in Congress, and that may still come down the path for you. But for right now, I love the fact that you're taking that energy and that passion, and you're directing it in this way.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that. I joke, you know, I tell people. So by the end of the year, um, you know my opponents—they're going to try to get me elected because they're going to say, "Man, he, he's causing more problems in the wild <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> than he is if we got him elected. If we can contain him in office. Right now, he's causing us a lot of problems." Oh, I love it.
2: I love it. I hope that's true.
0: <laughs> well, well. Speaking after the election, there, Kendall, in January of this year, you founded the nonprofit Take Charge Minnesota. What's the aim of the organization, and what narratives in popular culture do you seek to to counter against?
1: Well, here's the, you know, it's interesting you say that. So I, I started to take charge as, a, as urgings from a lot of my supporters that said, Kendall, you know, your message during your campaign, it, we need it more than ever in the public square. Right. And, it, and it's, it's, it's the idea that America works and that we're, we're the, the foundation of what we all believe in and what the founders started and said, we can't have a self-governing country yep. um, if the people are not virtuous. You have to mm-hmm. a virtuous population. And you don't get virtue from an iPhone app. You know, right. you know, right. it's, it's based on, <laughs> on godly foundations. Mm-hmm. And second is you got to be a literate population. You have to be a literate population. And we're struggling on both. So I, I started uh, Take Charge at the behest of my supporters. We started on, on Martin Luther King holiday. And on that on that particular day, January 18th, I got um, my op-ed published in, in the Star Tribune, mm. okay. And it was around... Three things, and, and it's, it's you know, a lot of what, again, what we we support and take charge. There's number one, Martin Luther King. He would be rolling in his grave today, realizing that for, at the time of his death, there we, we were nearly 80 percent two-parent families in the black community. Mm-hmm. We moved from 80 percent two-parent family to 80 percent fatherless homes Ugh. in one in one lifetime.
2: Wow, mm-hmm. that that is that's
1: not what that the is civil shocking. rights movement was all about. No, it is shocking and. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to write another op-ed about this because not only is it shocking, we've we've went to this huge cultural, literally, a cultural genocide without one a national initiative to reverse it.
3: But mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. so we're going to talk about how the silence of that of right. that evil, right? And and, and the third, second point I wrote in the op-ed was when it comes to education, you know, education was paramount in the black community from from the very beginning when and during slavery. You know, slaves were really tortured when they were found trying to learn to read.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: The, the, the Brown versus the Board of Education was about equal parity of education opportunity. Right. And so right now, right now, again, Martin Luther King, he would be rolling in his grave, realizing that the motivation um, behind... Um, are, are in a the, in the culture, the motivation is not as there as, as it used to be. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. And, then,
1: and then lastly, and this speaks right to critical race theory, mm-hmm. this idea of content of character is what we should use to judge people, not color of skin.
3: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And, and, and I said in the, in the article, he, he, it was wrong then in his era, and just mm-hmm. because the canon is pointed toward another race, Mm-hmm. doesn't make it right. It was wrong then and it's
0: wrong now. Mm-hmm. Right. And I just mm-hmm. think it's really interesting. You, you, you brought about the point of virtue. And our founders, they understood this. We talk a lot on the show about the Northwest Ordinance, Article 3 of 1787, which is a simple quotation. It says, religion, virtue, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools, and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. It was the first federal law passed as it pertained to education. It's completely forgotten about today.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That's right. Well, and, and that's why it's so, it's so important for us to have school choice. Yes. Um, you know what? Listen, I, I came to my Christian faith later in life. I was 27 years old,
3: mm-hmm. and I
1: remember as a kid when when you know all these old people were going fanatic about <laughs> you know there's no more prayer in school, there's no more Bibles in school. I, you know, I didn't get it at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. I get it. I get it now. Right? Yes. Totally right. get it now.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, if if we do the if we do, have done all those things that we needed to do early on in kids' lives. We had solid families. You wouldn't need as much police intervention in right. our in our culture today because of the behaviors that we would have.
2: Exactly. Would so be very different. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. That that moral compass has definitely um, shifted since the 1960s. You know, you're probably well aware of this that they did remove Bible reading in schools and uh, prayer in schools in 1962 and 1963. And so we really have seen a dramatic shift in in just the morality of our country, and I think you're right, Kendall, this doesn't just affect the black communities, but it really affects the whole country that our moral yeah. compass is off and we're we're paying the price for that yep. now. yeah right Well, I love your goals of faith, family, and education. Those are excellent goals uh, for you to be working towards um, in improving or increasing and valuing in your take charge Minnesota group. And um, we've, we've also you know had you talk a little bit about exposing some of the cultural narratives that are bringing greater division in our country. Could you take a few moments to highlight arguments that mostly go unheard in debates surrounding racial justice and actions taken over decades by elected representatives that have brought great damage to families of color?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, there's two things. Again, I'm going, to, I'm going to write in my op-ed. One that. What so first of all in in the in the late nineteen mid nineteen sixties
3: mm-hmm.
1: again, you have to keep in mind that although american black families we didn't have full access and, and rights as citizens to the u s constitution.
3: Mm-hmm. We weren't
1: getting due process of law, but during the worst of all of these times, and my father lived through it, my father-in- law lived through it and their memories and their stories that have been told. How, how dehumanizing that was.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: We still had families intact, nearly 80%. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, it was the 60s that started this process where, you know, it one of the first times in American history, we ins- were incentivizing women to have children as long as they remained unmarried.
3: Mm-hmm. And that
1: program was called Aid to Family with Dependent Children. A hybrid of that program still exists today. Mm. And they actually employed people to go around and inspect, make sure that men, the fathers were not in the homes.
2: Unbelievable. Mm. Did they really? It, Unbelievable.
1: Yeah. And, and so at, at initially you might have thought, well, that was good intentions to help get people out of poverty. Sure. That, mm-hmm. you know, and started, that's what they would say. Mm-hmm. But after the first decade, the second decade, when they see the collateral damage that is done in the community, um... There's never been a change. As I said earlier, we've gone from 80% two-parent to 80% fatherless homes, and without one national initiative to change it, no, no initiative to change that program, especially incentivizing women to have children, um, out of wedlock. And mm-hmm. um, that's so that's one big one. The second, mm-hmm. the second one is if you look at all the major cities across our country, they're, they're predominantly led by one political organization. Yep. And in a lot of these major cities, high school graduation rates are abysmal.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: literally, we're 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 creating an illiterate population. Right. And what what's happening is is that these these people we have progressive organizers here that actually are weaponizing these kids. Mm-hmm. So what do I mean by that? Well, here's what happens, when, especially for young young boys, young teenage boys, if they haven't had a father in a home coaching and disciplining and loving, putting boundaries in place like every father does with their, their child. Mm-hmm. So they don't, they don't have those boundaries. They're not getting an education. And as they get into the late teens and early twenties and struggling to, to become independent, mm-hmm. provide, a, provide a roof over their head, they're not able to articulate their frustration out
3: right. in,
1: in a, in a educated way. Cause they, they they've hadn't had the proper education. They mm-hmm. haven't had the proper home training to understand how to manage anger. Mm-hmm. And so you've got a lot of emotionally tense um, people, population that acts out in an emotional way. Mm-hmm. And especially when you get the political leaders that encourage it.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so true. You know, you've done such a great job of articulating that. Um, I think some of us have had thoughts like that running through our head, but you articulate so very well The difference that that makes to not have a father there um, or, you know, someone there to really teach the kids discipline and um, and then also to help them to, to help understand the ramifications of not having an education. I think sometimes people just see it as a statistic and they they don't stop and think about the fact that these are human beings with whole whole lives ahead of them and if they're not given the tools to really become independent and yet they're growing up and becoming 19, 20, 21, 22 years old and yet they don't have the tools to be independent you're right that is a powder keg that's a that's a recipe for a disaster and that's really what we're seeing isn't it
1: it's absolutely what we're seeing you know I'll give you an example so there, we have a a new uh, y- young olympic star um that's going to be heading to Tokyo young woman from Alabama I, I can't remember her name but you know she was raised by her grandmother. Mm-hmm. Okay, not, not, so this is, this is someone that's, um, you know, my age or older,
3: mm-hmm.
1: not, a, not, not this generation of parents. And she was raised to you know, do all the things that we were taught as young kids, right? You know, look after yourself, clean up the house, blah, blah, blah. She would get up in the morning and drive her grandmother to, to work. And then wow. this young girl would go to work at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. And she would make, a, she said, $100 every two weeks she said she thought it was the best job ever
3: <laughs> and
1: she, she got up did that work and just and worked hard and and she she's one of these kids going to the olympics because she worked hard and saw an opportunity and she wanted that job at McDonald's to help pay for college yeah mm-hmm. and saw r- running track and field that they, she was raised by the previous generation not this generation mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. has bought into the victim victimhood
2: yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so sad.
0: And on that note, that's very interesting, Kendall. You know, you've stated in the past that true African-Americans are doing great in this country. We're talking about people that are moving from the continent of Africa to come here to the United States. Um, and I'd like for you to share with our listeners the success that that Africans from other parts of the world and people of color from other parts of the world have experienced for themselves here in the United States.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. um, um so that's I typically don't refer to um, native-born Black Americans, descendants of African slaves
3: mm-hmm.
1: of this country, as African Americans. I refer to them as Black Americans. Mm-hmm. They're black. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because African Americans, that if they truly felt that this was a land of discrimination, if they felt my oh I have to worry about my kids being shot by police every day, right? Mm-hmm. They wouldn't. Bring, they wouldn't come here. They have a choice to either go to Canada, Australia because they were the one of the most highly educated populations. And I'll I'll just take Nigeria, for example, Mm -hmm. some of the most highly educated immigrants that come to this country, Mm -hmm. they earn Nigerians, Nigerian Americans that come here legally Mm -hmm. as citizens. They're grateful (laughs) Americans. Um, They earn 17% more than the average American, not the average black American, the average American. Wow. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, they're, they're just like any other immigrant that comes to this country they see opportunity they don't see the barriers
2: yeah mm-hmm. that's an important distinction too i hadn't i hadn't considered that and i think it's good for our listeners to hear um that you reference b- black americans as black americans and that the recent immigrants coming from africa are the ones that you would refer to as african and americans. again
0: that just that just yeah. impresses again all about mindset. You know, people that are coming to this country, where it's Africa or anywhere else in the world, they recognize the opportunities that yep. are here in the United States. And if you're willing to work for those opportunities, you see this type of success. Exactly.
2: Yep.
1: I, absolutely. And, and you know, it, it's not just Africa. I mean, a lot of a lot of black uh, people from the Caribbean islands. Mm-hmm. Same way
2: they
1: they, they they look at native-born Black Americans very differently. Mm-hmm. Um. Unfortunately, I mean, they Mm -hmm. they see the issue and they see the whole family dynamic being one of the biggest problems. Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They see exactly what you see, which is why they, I'm sure, are very much in support of what you're doing through Take Charge. Mm Yeah. Well, you've spoken extensively of the solutions to the problems plaguing the black community. Take Charge, as I said earlier, points to faith, family and education as the answers, not the narratives pushed through critical race theory. Can you take some time to unpack each of these solutions so that people really have an understanding of what you mean?
1: Sure. So one of the things that I've done, uh, so I've gone into the black community just meeting people, mm-hmm. just through networking and everything else. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I, I, I mentioned, just one thing, I just said, look, God did not intend for, chil- for, for children to be raised by their mothers alone. Right. right. And all heads not up and down. I don't mm-hmm. talk politics. I just talk culture. Mm-hmm. And and so everyone gets it, but they don't know what to do next. One of the other things I I'll, I'll say is, um, you know what? From a, from a marriage standpoint, Black American women uh, on an annualized basis, they get married twenty only twenty percent of the population, and that will will get married. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely sad. If not, it's not lower. Um, and and what I say is, look. God intended us to have be in companionship mm-hmm. in our lives, not mm-hmm. alone.
3: Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. and
1: they get that too. Yeah, and, when, and what I've been to share is that this we did not used to live like this. Right. Who wants to help me returning to our cultural roots of what well, where we were before we had help from the government?
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: basically, I get people that raise their hands. I, you know, what would you like me to do? Uh And this is really about educating the next generation. So elementary school, um, middle school kids, we we go to after school programs. Mm -hmm. And I have now volunteers that are young black couples with young kids, and they get the chance to see what a family, a a black family looks like a nuclear family, like, cause they never see it in their neighborhood.
2: Oh, isn't that just shocking? That's so sad, but what a wonderful thing for you to do. Yeah. To go right to where the kids are after school. That's great.
1: Right. And, and so it's how it, people, some people actualize in themselves what they can visualize.
3: Mm-hmm. We,
1: we give that visual life picture of a, of a, of a nuclear family with a, with a dad and a mom and kids. So these kids can see it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and and so we're doing boots on the ground. I'm recruiting um, anywhere from 75 to 100 people by the end of the year in the black community of Twin Cities. Oh, that's. Great. And then we we produce a series of videos to help with that communication process as mm-hmm. well. Hmm.
2: Fantastic. And I know I I've been watching some of your videos that you've been posting, and they've been outstanding. Um, we your your initial launch video with multiple people in it was. I thought, excellent. I think it was We Need to Talk, I think was the beginning of it. Yes. And uh, the one with Rashad Turner was so excellent. And now your most recent one that you'll be launching soon. Um, you're, you're very good at capturing the important elements and succinctly getting a message out in a very instructive way, but yet also in a real passionate way and in a way that I think engages culture. And I think it's a message that, People aren't used to hearing now with critical race theory in their ears everywhere, you know. Um, yours are so refreshing, and I think it's going to get people to think.
0: And I think the experiences, too, that Kendall's had from the time that he was a, a small child. I mean, yeah. there's certainly a credibility as that's there as well too
2: right it does it does give you it gives him credibility gives you credibility Mm -hmm. yeah that's great
0: yeah it
1: didn't feel much like credibility while i was going through it as a kid i'm sure sure not
2: (laughs) (laughs) sometimes god has us on paths that make that seem awful at the time but we see the service later so yeah yeah um well i also like to hear that you're recruiting 75 people um to help you get into the neighborhoods i think that you know there's always great power with numbers and you can't do it all yourself and you recognize that. So training some people to go out into the communities I think is going to really be a powerful way to reach your people, the, the people right. in the areas that need to hear it. Absolutely.
1: Right. And, and, and you know what, I'd tell you, I'm, I'm having a ton of fun doing it. I've had a, re- a very rewarding career, i had a re- rewarding time serving our country in, in uniform. I think this is just, if not even more, Exciting to see um, the people and the sharing their lives and, and wanting to help a transformation. All of these volunteers that I'm recruiting, everyone's is doing this uh, gratis. No, no, yeah. no, no one's being compensated. They're mm-hmm. doing it because they want to help change the culture. Mm-hmm. Oh. This is absolutely fascinating.
2: Yeah, that's wonderful to see. Well, this year you've had the experience to, or the opportunity, excuse me, to partner with the Center of the American Experiment. And both organizations have undertaken a 17 city tour across Minnesota known as Raise Our Standards Tour. That's you, um, Take Charge Minnesota, and the Center for the American Experiment. And you guys, the two of you, Catch and Wigfall and you, Kendall, have been speaking out against the state's proposed social studies standards that are rooted in critical race theory. How has your message been received thus far across the state?
1: Yeah, that, that, it's been a great tour. It's, it's, it's neat when they initially asked me, "Hey, do you want to go on a road tour with us?" I, th- I thought they wanted me to join their band. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, l- luckily they, they they don't know how bad I can sing, but, <laughs> but the receptivity has been huge. I can tell you, each one of these events have been standing room only, mm-hmm. um, and 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 it's a nice compliment between the two organizations. So, Center. It's a phenomenal organization. They do a great research. They're they're they have to be one of the most practical um, think tanks that we have in the country, not just mm-hmm. in the state, obviously.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But I agree. How how so so? What Catherine does with her presentation from the center, it it gives all of the examples of what the different school districts are using to promote critical race theory. She does a great academic overview, mm-hmm. and then my presentation complements it because. I, I basically share the testimony of my life
3: mm-hmm.
1: of how America works. Yeah, If anything that I'm doing, I'm, I am not debunking critical race theory. I'm not promoting black privilege or black people. I'm promoting that America works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And guess what? At the end of the day, you have to take ownership for your responsibility. Sometimes the things you do in life don't come out to what you expected and goals. But, you know, it's called you know get up and try it again. And take ownership and responsibility. And, and at the ultimate, they take charge. That's, that's why we named it Take Charge of Your Own Life.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. And what I like, too, is that it's not just um, the students and the, the people in their lives that they want to take charge, but your volunteers are taking charge, too. And there is something really um, enticing about that when you feel like you can do some people oftentimes complain about what they see is wrong in the culture. But when they can take charge and actually do something, it feels so much better for them and they, and they really can engage then. So you're providing an opportunity for everyone to take charge.
1: Yeah, it's, and it's neat with some of the volunteers. I tell you, I have people that are, you know, women that were attorneys, never got in trouble, just lived a great life. Mm-hmm. I want some women that uh, used to be on welfare, used to be on public assistance, um, had had, you know, kids. In fact, that's going to be our next video coming out. Had kids when she was a teenager. Turned her life around. Yeah. I said, this is the pathway to go. And she wants to be able to tell that story so her grandchildren won't go down that same path.
2: Yeah. And, yeah, um, that is just an exact, that's an perfect way. For us to um, really draw to a close our time with you, Kendall, today, and uh, we ask our listeners to join us again next week where we're going to continue this conversation with Kendall Qualls from Take Charge Minnesota. And Kendall, we are so glad to have you on on air with us today, and we look forward to continuing our conversation next week. And for our thank listeners, you for me. yeah, yes. thank you. And then for our listeners, you can listen to this podcast and other podcasts at Ed America and Education America. Dot org or save the classroom and we'll see you next week at a.m. 1280 the Patriot 6 p.m. Saturday nights